though the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does it. Spooky South Coast, back in its original time slot. And we will be here from 10 to midnight every Saturday night talking about the paranormal, the strange and unusual, things that you don't hear the rest of the week on the radio. I am Tim Weisberg, and with me is the rest of the spooky crew. We have uh, producer extraordinaire, the silent assassin, Matt Costa, and science advisor, Matt Moniz, who has over 20 years' experience investigating the paranormal. He's worked on some of the biggest cases and He's been to some of the most haunted places that uh, that'll let him in. I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure eventually you're going to go to one where yeah, the spirits say. Places that haven't let me. Well, exactly. Well, we, we, we can't talk about that for legal reasons. But you know, sooner or later you're going to try to go into one of these places, and the ghosts are going to be like, "Oh no, no, we heard about this guy." So, and uh, we are back. Uh, we did have the little prime time experiment back in December, and that worked out great. Thanks to everybody that joined us, and welcome in if you're joining us for the first time here on Saturday night, because we have. An excellent show for you tonight. Uh, when we started this show, which uh, coincidentally was almost one year ago, uh, Matt Moniz is not going to be with us next week. He's going to a special event, so we will observe our first anniversary right now. When we started this show over a year ago, and we started putting together a, a list of possible guests, uh, Matt Costa and myself, we had a, a small group of local people that were involved in the paranormal, uh, people that we'd heard of, maybe some authors from Massachusetts and Rhode Island that had written ghost uh, ghost books. And, of course, you know, maybe the possibility back then that we could have somebody from TAPS on lineage. And as we've been able to, thankfully through our wonderful fans and listeners around the world, grown in scope over that year, uh, we realized, now, wait a minute. We can actually talk to some of these people that we really, really love to talk to. And one of my dream guests since the first time I heard him on Coast to Coast was our Gary Patterson. And he is with us tonight. He's going to talk to us about rock and roll myths, legends, curses. Uh, we're going to touch upon some of the most famous rock and roll deaths, and we're going to spend a significant portion of this first hour talking about one of the most famous deaths or non-deaths in rock and roll, and that would be Paul McCartney. Is he dead? Is the Paul McCartney that we know and love really just an imposter? Well, we're going to find out all of that and more with Gary Patterson in just a few minutes, but let me throw out the phone numbers in case you'd like to join in the discussion. You can call in with any question about anything to do with the paranormal anytime during our show, but tonight in particular we're going to be focusing on these rock and roll cases, and I'm sure listeners have plenty of questions about those. And the numbers are 508-996-0500, I remember those off the top of my head without saying them aloud for the past three weeks. Now, those are the numbers to get a hold of us, and we can put you on the air with Gary as the night goes along. Also, if you'd like to get in touch with us via the Internet, which currently isn't working for us here tonight, but all week long, you can check out SpookySouthCoast.com, and there's plenty of discussion going on on the message board there. There's usually live chats being run during the show. We have a couple of fan sites that have helped us out. We have uh, SSCFan.com, which is run by our friend Carl, and our friend uh, an Eagles Angel over on her site, SpiritedSociety.net, runs a live chat as well. So they're there if you'd like to join the discussion that way. But uh, we're going to get right into it tonight with R. Gary Patterson. He's the author of books such as The Walrus Was Paul, uh, Hellhounds on Their Trail, 
and Tales from the Dark Side. So, uh, Gary, how are you tonight? I'm doing great. How are you? Oh, we are excellent. As, as I was saying, it's it's been my dream personally to have you come on our show, and I'm glad that you could finally join us to share some of these stories because they are fascinating. Well, thank you. Very kind to have me on. I'm looking forward to it. Now, what what exactly is your background? I, I know you're a teacher. How did you get involved <laughs> in documenting these, these rock and roll cases? Well, I think the first thing is I grew up at the perfect time for the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin, and you heard these stories that were making a round into myth and then became legends. And actually, the whole thing for me started in a classroom experiment when I was doing a, uh, a topic on allegory, and I thought, well, you know, I need to reach outside the fairy queen, and let me go into pop culture, and let's do Paul is Dead and some of the visual clues. And, and the class loved it. The next thing I knew, I thought, well, this might, this might make an interesting book. So the book took out and uh, did that with Simon & Schuster in New York. I've been with them since 97, and uh, I've had a great time with it, and, and developed the book into other myths and legends from rock and roll. It's always fascinating. Uh, and as you said, you started with the, the Paul McCartney, we'll call it a case. Mm -hmm. uh, and how much uh, notification, I mean, how much uh, interaction did you have with anybody representing Paul McCartney or the Beatles? Well, actually, the Beatles don't like to talk about this topic very much. Uh, Anything that I, I did involved people around the Beatles, like some members and family, people who had worked with them. And, uh, but I found that they were amazed at some of the clues because in England, it was not as big in the, as it was in the United States. And I did a radio show, a couple of shows in, in, with the BBC and in London. And one of the DJs over there told me, you know, we don't know anything about this. This is incredible. You know, I mean, how, and it, it's like an, an American phenomena. And, uh, so maybe maybe it was designed for an American audience, but uh, I know it was major league over here. And, and you know the funny thing to me is it's still going on. Well, we are conspiracy theorists uh, as a nation, uh -huh. so it doesn't surprise me at all. Well, you know you got to look at the '60s. I mean, uh, Paul's Dead Rumors started in '69, so John Kennedy was killed in '63, and you had the Warren Commission report. And you know a lot of people automatically said, "Well, the Warren Commission's wrong. It's a conspiracy theory involving the CIA." Cuban immigrants, whatever, organized crime. And then in 68, you had the death of Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King Jr. So to, to be in the proper mindset and to rid the world of Beatle influences uh, was uh, something that could very well have happened in 1969. It was very believable. Today, it, it may not be as much, but in, in 1969, there was a strange coldness that went with it to think that uh, there could be secret government agencies that could be capable of doing that. And so, you know, suddenly, as a nation, you know, no longer can Americans accept anything at face value. And at the same time, uh, you know, the powers that be very, very aware of the counterculture and some of the key figures in it. Uh, and I know that John Lennon, during the course of his life, was the subject of numerous inquiries from the FBI and the CIA. Oh, exactly. I mean, uh, he even sent coffee to uh, <laughs> to a car with undercover uh, agents and, and sent it to him because he knew he was being followed. And uh, you know, this was one thing. I mean, I'm, you know, you talk about a paranoid age, but if you look at Monterey in the Summer of Love, you know, look at the number of rock acts that were signed that became big at Monterey, and the artists were dead within two years. I mean, you take a look at Jimi Hendrix. Uh, he, he premiered at Monterey. He was dead. Uh, Mama Cass and Mama and the Poppies, you know. I mean, everybody thinks she's not a rock icon, but she had major links to the counterculture. She was dead. Otis Redding made his performance there. He was dead, I think, in uh, 67. Or 68, and then uh, after Otis Redding, you had uh, Brian Jones with the Rolling Stones put on. He was dead in 69. So, I mean, it looked like a hit list was about. It. And of course, I'm not saying it's a conspiracy behind it, but it's just really odd that 
a number of the great rock on uh, rock icons that started at Monterey were dead within three years. I mean, you have to look at it too. A lot of these deaths that have happened are due to the uh, excesses of the lifestyle that comes mm -hmm. with being a rock and roll star. But I mean, it, it was kind of a new thing because you know throughout throughout this nation's history, you know, music stars have always been seen. Uh, always seem to be, you know, a step above the common folk, just as we do with movie stars today. But I think that was really the first real excesses that you saw in music. I mean, for until that point, the drug addiction that was involved in the music industry was kind of, you know, swept under the rug. And now we're seeing these hard partying rock stars, and a lot of them were a victim of that. But like you said, it is just eerie how many of them were all tied in and similar to each other. It was, and also it's kind of eerie to realize how many secret FBI files were kept on these artists, especially, you know, the number one artist besides John Lennon was Jim Morrison and Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix all had hundreds of pages of FBI documentation. And uh, if you remember, uh, when Jimi Hendrix died, he died two weeks before Janis Joplin in 1970. And when Hendrix died, Joplin said, well, I'm glad I didn't die today because he'd got all the press. Then she was dead two weeks later. And when Jim Morrison had heard the story, this uh, he was in Miami for his obscenity trial. And as he was hearing that Janice and Jimmy had died, he turned to his friends and said, you know, you're drinking with number three. Mm. And he was dead on July 3rd, 1971. It, it is eerie uh, how many rock stars have predicted their own deaths. And we'll get into a lot of that in, in the second hour. We'll talk about uh, Ronnie Van Zant and uh, his kind of ominous prediction and, and also, of course, the day the music died as well. Uh but getting back into the into the Beatles case and, and Paul McCartney's situation, now if you want to believe this theory, and I, I take it that you don't believe this theory, but <laughs> if you want to believe this theory, uh, what it is is that in uh, I believe 1966 uh, is the date that they believe that Paul McCartney supposedly died in a, in a car crash, mm -hmm. and then he was replaced with a uh, Paul McCartney lookalike that actually won a some kind of secret contest. I always love the secret contest. <laughs> how do you have a secret contest if a you're trying to A secret contest. In, in Canada, by the way. You know, that, that's how the story goes. But I, I think what you need to do is sort of set the stage. Why 1966? And the reason being 66 was the Beatles didn't do any live performances after 1966. And, I mean, they were tired of just the live shows. It wasn't fun anymore. And then they put themselves into the studio. And then look at the change in the music. I mean, you had Revolver, which was different from anything. I mean, Rubber Soul was the, was the beginning, but Revolver was totally different. And then when Sgt. Peppers came out, there was the Beatles with mustaches and beards, and the music was unlike anything. It wasn't She Loves You anymore. I mean, it's gone into a whole different area. And a lot of people thought, well, you know, this music's not the same. And they always were looking for a reason. So when the rumor came out that Paul McCartney had been killed in a car crash in 1966, that when this happened, uh, a lot of people believed it because they thought, well, you know, McCartney was the most popular Beatle after John had made a statement that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus Christ. So he was the cute Beatle. He was the most popular one. But it still didn't make much sense because uh, why were the Beatles trying to get the message? And the idea was that Lennon and the other Beatles wanted to make sure that their fans got the message that they were forced to bring this imposter into the band to generate income for EMI, the British government, and that's where the conspiracy starts. And, and the first time you hear it, I mean, when I, did, when I heard it the first time, I was right out of high school. So, I mean, I grew up and listened to the radio broadcasts, which I thought were almost chilling at the time. But I remember when Life Magazine came out with an article saying Paul was still with us. You know, you said, oh, my gosh, that was, what a crazy rumor that was. So 
you normally think that a lot of people probably had way too much time on their hands and uh, they were coming up with clues that really were just silly. But when I did the book, I found out that you had clues that were totally ridiculous. And then you had clues that would be like guided listening or guided looking. Because if you show someone the yellow hyacinth flowers and says it, it spells out Paul question mark, or if you turn it to the side, it's a P, you know, you may not see it until someone points it out. And you say, okay, I can see it now. But, I mean, is it really there? It's a power suggestion. And the same thing with backward tracks on the album. But the thing that startled me was some of the clues that couldn't be explained. I mean, they were too clever to be coincidence. Exactly. Which, which means that the Beatles had actually planted the seed to have this. And for some reason, never talked about it again. And, I mean, I know that Paul McCartney still has fun with this. Because if you remember the Simpsons show, I think it was in 1997, just happened to be watching television with the Simpsons and Paul and Linda were on cartoon figures and Lisa wanted to become a vegetarian so she asked Paul and Linda, you know, how's the best way to become a vegetarian? And Paul says, well, you know, if you play Maybe I'm Amazed Backwards, there's a ripping recipe for lentil soup. You know, I was like, oh, this is funny. But when the show ended, you could hear McCartney singing Maybe I'm Amazed, but then you heard this, heard this voice in the background going, I said, oh my God, it's a backward track. And it was. And when you listen to it reversed, you hear Paul McCartney say, take one clove of garlic, <laughs> add one cup of pepper. And he goes through this whole recipe for lentil soup. And at the very end, he says, oh, by the way, I'm alive. <laughs> you know, it, it, it really is interesting that they can have that kind of fun with it. Uh, if you want to look at it from the perspective of well, what we most commonly suggest is that it, it was somewhat, you know, predetermined by the Beatles to do this. And it was their way of having fun. You know, one of the one of the theories that we actually were talking about this on the way in, uh, myself oh, and Matt Costa, we were talking about why did the Beatles have such a stark change in their music? And I had always heard, you know, that it, growing up, you know, well, they got into drugs. Well, they got into, you know, Buddhism, all these different reasons. Mm-hmm. But one of the standout reasons in my mind is that in 65, I think it was, they played Shea Stadium. And it was so bad they couldn't even hear themselves play. Mm-hmm. And the story that I heard, I don't know if it's urban legend or not, is that they just started playing like any crap because nobody could hear what they were playing anyway. So they were just having fun and just screwing around. And then they realized, you know, if this is the fan base that we have, we can just quote unquote screw around. We can do things that are different and experimental. And that that's kind. Of, and when they retreated into the studio, that's kind of you know the the rebirth of that. You too had a similar experience. Uh, with the Joshua Tree tour, when they realized how big they'd become and how they couldn't do it that way anymore, mm-hmm. that they went into the studio and they just totally revamped their image. So maybe that kind of set it up for them. But uh, I, from what I was reading earlier, is there was a, a conscious effort to do this, to put out this little quote-unquote hoax, and that they were going to eventually reveal that it had all been in fun and it was just a, a, a fun game that they have been playing with the fans. But then it just so happened that Charles Manson comes out and says that there's all these secret messages in Beatles songs saying that there's going to be a race war in America. Mm-hmm. And then they said, well, wait a minute now. If we admit to doing the quote-unquote Paul is dead stuff, then we're going to be just as scrutinized for possibly putting this other stuff in there as well. Oh, exactly. As a matter of fact, uh, Manson's attorney intended to subpoena John Lennon and Paul McCartney and bring him to California. Now, what would it be like if you were on the stand and they were asking you if you put hidden messages in Beatles songs? Yeah, to exactly. sort of alter perception. In other words, you know, and, and Lennon would say, well, you know, uh, we wanted people to think Paul was dead, but we didn't mean anything to Charles Manson. Well, you know, this would have been something that would have made him culpable for some reason. I mean, if it was an idea that it, a backward track could actually change some form of behavior. 
and I mean it was a questionable area, and they sure didn't need the negative publicity. So I think that, and plus in 1969, it was sue me, sue you stage. I mean they weren't getting along at all anyway. But you know, if you think of this, remember uh, how do you sleep to John Lennon when he says those freaks was right when they said you was dead, mm-hmm. and then Ringo Starr's song back off Boogaloo, where Boogaloo was a code name that the other three Beatles had for McCartney, and uh, Ringo says, wake up, meathead, don't forget that you were dead. So if you take a look at those, I mean, it seems like someone knew something about some of the clues, and, and since they weren't getting along, and since you had the, the whole issue with the, the Mantha murders, maybe it was a better time just to shut up and let the legend continue, and, and actually, to tell you the truth, I hope they never come clean on it, because it's too much fun, you know? Exactly. I hate for them to... Well, the whole the whole fantasy of it. I don't know if you're familiar with the comedian Robert Wall. Uh, yes. He just put out a, a great HBO special, and in this special, he's talking to a college classroom, and he says that throughout American history, when reality becomes legend, you know, you print the legend. Exactly. And that seems to be the case in this because it, it's going to endear, even if they did come out and say, yeah, it was all a hoax, it's still not going to quell, you know, this this the people that look at this information. What, what would you say is the first? indication of these Paul is Dead rumors on a Beatles recording? I mean, we can go back to yesterday and today. And, I mean, you got to remember some of this to me. You know, it's you find the clue, then you go back and you look at other albums. I mean, some people said, look at the Help album. Paul's the only one who doesn't have a hat. Well, you know, that's silly. But, <laughs> but I mean, if you look at a lot of the albums, McCartney's portrayed completely different from the others. Either he's looking the other way or he's got a different background. But, I mean, that goes back to health, and obviously the Beatles weren't playing it that far back. I think the Sgt. Pepper album, I mean, that's the one that I go back, that I say that, you know, there's there's too many too many strange references on that album that it had to be planted. So I'll go back to 1967 in June with the release of Sgt. Pepper's. That's my beginning. Which Now, would that have been the first release after the supposed car accident? Yes, it would have been. And, uh, you know, when I was researching my book, I found that, there was a rumor in England that Paul McCartney had been killed in January of 67 in a car accident on the M1 motorway that uh, he hit icy roads and, and he was killed. And there was a, a plethora of people calling Apple trying to find out about McCartney. And it was so bad that uh, the Apple offices called McCartney at his home in St. John's Wood, and, and Paul said, no, I'm, I'm fine. I've been home all day. So I was just wondering, you know, if all that attention, going to McCartney and, and the idea he was dead, you think the Beatles could have thought, hey, why don't we hide some clues and let's have some, yeah, fun, let's with have some fun with it? I mean, obviously they knew that it would be an out, you know, just an outrageous uh, reaction to it. So, And what if they sold a lot of records? So, you know, the odd thing is, in 1967, the same year, Jim Morrison had a plan with the Doors to announce that he was dead so they would sell more Doors records because when the rock star dies, they make millions more. Look oh, at Johnny Ace, the late, great Johnny Ace, and and look at Buddy Holly. So, I mean, it was a, a pretty good formula, wasn't it? Uh, and it always has worked uh, through history. But I, I can understand, you know, some of these clues that they say are on, especially the Sgt. Pepper album mm-hmm. cover. Uh, there are some that are that do stand out right away. I mean, the fact that the only instrument represented uh, on the album cover in Flowers is the bass uh, directed as if it was being played left-handed. Exactly. Uh, and if you count the strings, have you noticed that? I mean, a bass guitar has four strings. Mm-hmm. The Beatles had four members. But if you look at the bass guitar, it has three strings. Oh, wow. I didn't even... So there's a missing string from the bass. 
and, and uh, supposedly the little Hindu statue is uh, supposed to be the mm-hmm. yeah, but the the story that they try to perpetrate is that it's Kali the Destroyer. Mm-hmm. With the left hand path pointing up to McCartney, and the other left the other hand pointing to the wax figure of McCartney mm-hmm. in the background. And there's all these little twists and turns uh, of that album cover, uh, but some of them do tend to get a little bit, as you said, a little bit like you're reading too much into it. The fact mm-hmm. that he's holding a black instrument uh, when the rest of them aren't. The fact that he's holding the only wood instrument signifying the wood of a coffin. Yeah, now mean, that's where you get pretty far out. Exactly. Some of them are getting deeper, but there's so much stuff that does stand straight out on that album, both musically and on the cover. Oh, uh, exactly. If you look at his left hand at the bottom of the, the oboe he's playing, he's got three fingers showing, you oh. know, which is another three. And then, of course, you go to come together, one and one and one is three. So, I mean, and then if you even look at the cover, it looks like if you look to the far left side of the red hyacinth flowers, it looks like you see a three in front of it. And also it doesn't say the Beatles, it just says Beatles, which represents that maybe there's three Beatles there and not four. So we can say that that might be guided looking, okay? And when you take a look at all this, one of the, one of the more fascinating things is the bass drum. And this is what really got me, because when I saw the bass drum and did the research on this, I found out, that the Beatles obviously had to plan this. It was completely ingenious, and someone in rock and roll history is not getting a fair credit for it because it's chilling when you look at it. And, you know, what would be the odds that of the four Beatles, McCartney is the only one under the open hand over his head? Which, of course, signifies death in Far Eastern. You know, that's what was fun because Life Magazine put this out in 69 and said, you know, an open hand over a person's head is a symbol of death in Far Eastern societies, or it's a sign of benediction when a body is placed into the grave where he makes a sign of the cross. I'm looking at this, I'm saying, well, you know, uh, how can you actually test to see if that's true? Because, you know, it's basically rumors. But for me, the open hand picks McCartney out of the other four. I'll give it that. And uh, not only at the time, too, the Beatles were starting to get into the into the Eastern religion as well. Exactly. So the Far Eastern references, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, all that stuff that you know had validity with it. So when you look at the crowd... I mean, the question was, the Beatles chose all these people to be on this album cover, and they had to get release forms. I know that Mae West wrote, she said, what would I be doing in a Lonely Arts Club band? And then they finally pleaded with her to have her pictured on there. So she agreed. But, I mean, you have Marilyn Monroe, you have Dion from Dion and the Belmonts, you have Aleister Crowley, you have <laughs> uh, gurus all the way through it. And, and what it becomes is like a yin-yang. I mean, you have uh, figures who were evil, you have figures who were good, you have the beautiful, you have the ugly, you have the, com- the comedians, you have the tragic figures, and it's like the opposite forces of the universe. And if you look in the picture, you see Lewis Carroll. And Lewis Carroll was uh, John Lennon's, one of his favorite uh, authors, and he loved the wordplay. And, of course, Lewis Carroll's famous book was Alice's Adventures Through the Looking Glass. So you take a mirror, and a mirror gives you the clue where you lay the album cover down, you take a straight-edge mirror, place it in the center of Lonely Hearts, and look from left to right, in the reflection of the glass to the album cover, and it spells out a hidden message. And lonely becomes numeral I, or one. Then it says O-N-E again, which is another one, so it'd be one, one. Then the next figures are I, X, which is Roman numeral nine. So it's one, one, nine. And then you look to the right, and it has he, die. And between he and die is a diamond-shaped arrow that points straight up to Paul McCartney, straight down to the grave. And the first time I saw that, I thought, well, you know, if this is a grave scene, as the rumor goes, then the bass drum would have to be a tombstone. 
And Peter Blake designed the entire cover, except the drum skin was designed by a painter whose name was Joe Epgrave. And it sounds suspiciously like Epitaph <laughs> engraved. Yeah, it does. It does, doesn't it? And the other thing is that that was the only thing that he designed. There were two drum skins designed for the cover of the album, and both drum skins are completely different except for the phrase Lonely Hearts, which had to be there for the mirror image. So when I first saw it, I thought, well, it's one. Okay, maybe one of the Beatles, the one with nine letters. He died. Well, McCartney had nine letters. But see, that's not what you find on a tombstone. What you find on a tombstone is, well, the name of the person and the date of his death. So if the diamond-shaped arrow points him out, then it would be McCartney. And let's take the two ones and put them together, where 1-1 one, one becomes 11, which would be November the 9th. Now, what made that very chilling to me was that when I was researching the book, I found that there was evidence of a car crash McCartney had on November the 9th. And then two, two other Beatle books, uh, Doubting Beatle Songs, mentions it. I thought, oh, my gosh, November the 9th, 119. Well, to make it even stranger, November the 9th, 1966, was a Wednesday, and this accident supposedly occurred at 5 o'clock in the morning. So you turn the album cover over on its back. It was the first album in rock and roll history that ever had lyrics printed on the jacket. First time ever. So the Beatles' pictures were made. McCartney has his back to the camera, and... One of the clues would be that he was an imposter. He's different from the others. He, he, his face had scars from plastic surgery. Some of this was totally ridiculous. But the funny thing was that George Harrison is standing there pointing with his thumb, and they superimpose the lyrics across the Beatles and the line from the opening line from She's Leaving Home that, that uh, Harrison's pointing to says, Wednesday morning at 5 o'clock. Which, uh... <laughs> It's, so, it's, well, yeah, it's would that not be odd? Yeah, it's definitely uh, synchronicity there. Uh, but also, I heard another story uh, that there was actually a friend of Paul McCartney's uh, who was involved in a moped accident with him. Uh, uh, Tara, Tara Brown. Tara Brown. Mm -hmm. So maybe, yeah. and that that is supposed to signify that accident. That's what they're talking about. Well, it wasn't on November 9th. Uh, the thing was that on that accident, McCartney had smashed his upper lip and had to grow a mustache to cover the scar. And when the mustache was, was shaven on the uh, White Album, there was a scar there. And a lot of people thought, look, see, there's plastic surgery, there's yeah. the scar. But, you know, the other story of Tara Brown was that he was the figure that John Lennon wrote about, and he blew his mind out in a car because Tara Brown was killed running a red light and is loaded. Supposedly on LSD at the time? Supposedly. That's how he blew his mind out. And uh, in the car with him was a beautiful model whose name was Suki Poitier. And she survived without a scratch, but she'd had a premonition in the accident that I think she said three other men would die because of her. So she dated Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> he died. He dated, she dated Brian Jones. He died. Then she was married, and she was despondent one day because her husband had cheated on her. She was driving a car, and she told her friends that she was going to commit suicide and take her husband with her. And she drives off this cliff, killing them both. So sometimes premonitions uh, in your lotus may have something with that. But I mean, that's a pretty strange story as well, isn't it? It is uh, absolutely. Uh, so let's let's as you started to allude to, let's get into some of the actual music on the Sgt. Pepper album. Sure. And of course, right away at the beginning, we're being presented with the idea of this is not the Beatles. This is Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and that there is no. You know Paul McCartney. There is no John Lennon, and the lead singer is somebody known as Billy Shears, and he's introduced by Paul McCartney. And and some people have speculated that this Billy Shears is involved, and he's a replacement. Uh, how do those stories come about? Well, you 
you know, first of all, uh, someone had written an article saying that Billy Shears was the son of Philip Shears in Chelsea and that he was the winner of this Paul McCartney lookalike contest. So when the Beatles go Billy Shears and introduce him, what's the first thing he says? What would you do? What would you think if I sang out of tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? Right? Did you even think of that? Yeah, because I mean, what if he's not as good as McCartney? Would you not buy a record anymore? You know, so he gets by with a little help from his friends, which means the Beatles cover it up. So that's pretty odd, but it it, it goes into that whole pattern. So, you know, the other thing was, uh, let's see, Fred Labore mentioned uh, William Campbell, who was the winner of a Paul McCartney lookalike contest in. In Canada, but you know you can't find any records of anything like this. And of course, it is a, it's a great urban legend. It's passed down into the role of myth that people have heard it and accept it. When uh, I am the Walrus came out, there was a rumor that Walrus was Greek for corpse, and it's not. But people accepted it. I mean, Walrus was Scandinavian and not Greek, but still, the whole idea was that a lot of this was just accepted. And uh, I guess I guess it created a lot of fun with people sitting in their dorm rooms playing their records backwards, listening to it. You know, getting those chilly moments. But uh, I mean, a lot of it can be discredited, but some of it, you know, obviously shows the Beatles provided the foundation. It's funny too because uh, some of the more extravagant stories really get deep into it. And they say that this uh, this Billy Shears, this William Shears Campbell mm-hmm. that won the contest in Canada, uh, was actually a member of the. Uh, the police in Montreal, mm-hmm. in, in Ontario, mm-hmm. and so that when you open up the jacket and and uh, Paul McCartney has the OPP badge, mm-hmm. and, and some people say it's officially uh, OPD officially pronounced dead, mm-hmm. and then some people say it's the Ontario Police Department, and that it's actually mm-hmm. Billy Shears. I mean, how much can we put into this? I mean, in, in your research, have you found was there actually a officer? Wouldn't there be records of an officer named? Sure, there would be, but there's not. You exactly. know, and when. I think the funny thing to me is the badge really says OPP, and uh, which would be Ontario Provincial Police. Okay, nothing about police departments. But this, the thing that really surprised me was in a Life magazine article that came out in November of 69, McCartney said, and I'm supposed to be wearing this silly badge that says OPD. He said, perhaps it's due for Ontario Police Department. So, I mean, here he is saying it was OPD when it was really OPP. So he, he helped perpetrate a little bit more of that himself. Oh, sure he did. I mean, in that article he was talking about, well, you know, on the album cover, Magical Mystery Tour, it was John dressed in black. It wasn't me. But in 1980, in an interview in Chicago, one of the DJs asked McCartney, they said, were you the walrus? He said, of course, I've always been the walrus. He said, we were filming the Magical Mystery Tour album, so I picked up this walrus head and black outfit and put it on. You know, <laughs> now, isn't that strange? Yeah, it's... It's, it's revisionist history, isn't it? And he he certainly has done his part without without coming out clean, but you know, they tried to really play with that walrus legend uh, quite a bit. And what we're going to do, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, actually, we have a call. So let's take the call, and then after the call, we'll take a break, and then when we come back, we'll discuss the walrus situation a little bit more. But let's uh, see who this is. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. How are you doing? Good. How are you? All right. You know who this is? Hi, Keith. Hi. How are you doing? <laughs> All right. It's our special guest host for next week. Oh, good. Yes. So uh, do you have a question for Gary? Or? Yes, I do, actually. Um, well, it's more of a comment. Uh, I want to see if I'm right, though, about the uh, Paul is dead rumor. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, people say that one piece of evidence that he was an imposter was that his uh, bass playing sound seemed to change, I guess, uh, after circa 66 to 69. I believe the true explanation for that was because he was playing a Hopner bass, mm-hmm. and he retired that in 1966 and started playing a Reichenbacher. Reichenbacher. 
I, I believe that's uh, the reason why his the sound of his bass playing changed. Well, I mean, I think that's a very astute observation. But, you know, we also have to think about this. If McCartney, the super talented Paul McCartney, died in 1966, what super incredible timeless Beatles song, songs did he compose before 66? Well, you may say yesterday. But the imposter who came in in 67, Helder Skelter, I mean, think of some of the great Beatles songs, the whole second side of Abbey Road. I mean, to find a guy who was an orphan, who won a Paul McCartney look-alike contest and who was an incredible writer. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Yeah, that is interesting. Absolutely. And plus, think of Live and Let Die, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, look at his work post-Beatles, too. That's what I'm saying. I mean, I mean uh, we'll, we'll forgive him for some of the stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, biker like an icon. Okay, we'll scratch that one. But, you know, he had, I mean, it, it's kind of funny because everybody said, well, the imposter wasn't talented. I guarantee you can name many more fabulous Beatles standards after and also, isn't it, uh, one of the other things I read is that uh, in 66, with the release of Pet Sound by the Beach Boys, there was a little bit more onus put on McCartney to play a more melodious bass. It was. I mean, first of all, I mean, Pet Sounds almost ended the Beatles. McCartney was flying back saying, oh, my God, how can we top that? How can we top that? that? That was the, the pervading spirit when they went in the studio to record Sgt. Pepper, right? To beat Pet Sounds. And then when Sgt. Pepper came out, Brian Wilson, oh, my God, how can we beat this? How can we beat this? Because <laughs> he didn't understand exactly the importance of Pet Sounds to the Beatles. And, of course, then Wilson put on the headphones and listened to Pet Sounds continuously for over 24 hours and, and had a breakdown because of it. So, I mean, you take these two creative forces, the Beach Boys and, and the Beatles, and the competition that went there. But didn't you realize that after the Beatles explored all this incredible music with uh, Sgt. Pepper's, they could never perform live again? They couldn't do this stuff live. Well, exactly. These days you can be experimental and recreate sure. it on the stage, but this kind of stuff back in 67, 68, no way. No way. And, they, and their fan clubs would write in and they would say, look, the Beatles can't go back. They have to keep exploring. They have to keep breaking new ground. And how could they beat Sgt. Pepper's? I mean, what more could you do? No one had ever accomplished that. So eventually they just go back to the guitar, bass, and drum sound, you know, and they had done it, but they'd also destroyed themselves as far as performing. Didn't they call themselves the Beatles because they started out having the same continuous beat in, in all of their songs? Well, now I've not heard that. I've heard that I've heard it was called the Beatles because they liked Buddy Holly and the Crickets, and they thought you know it was one of their favorite bands, Crickets, Beatles. That goes together. I've heard that too. I've heard both. Mm -hmm. And then they also there's a rumor that uh, they named it after the motorcycle gang in uh, the Wild Ones with Marlon Brando, who were called the Beatles. So I mean, there's so many urban legends that go along with the name of the band. But did you know that Buddy Holly almost called his band the Beatles? No, I didn't oh, know that. <laughs> that was one of the titles. So, you know, and oh, by the way, uh, the first song ever recorded by the Beatles, they borrowed a friend's uh, tape deck and went into their house and they recorded, I think it was John's house, and they recorded That'll Be the Day of Buddy Holly. So I guess they had this really, and of course, Paul McCartney owns the catalog for Holly today. Mm -hmm. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you, Keith, for checking in. Thank you very much. We will talk to you next week, and we'll uh, we'll talk about your class as well. We'll see you then. And I want to thank you for having me on your show the other night. Oh, yeah, you were a great guest. I, I know that's going to be a fantastic show. Is, I just is there it. a planned air date for that yet, Keith? Uh, I think it's going to be, in, uh, as far as I know, in maybe two weeks. Okay, and then it will be on your website once, yes. uh, once it airs. We'll, we'll upload it very soon. Okay, and we'll put a link on Spooky South Coast as well. Okay, great. All right, thank you, Keith. Thank you. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. All right, we will take a quick break. On the other side, we will get more into the Beatles. We'll talk about the walrus. Uh, who was the walrus? Was it Paul? Was it John? 
What does it all mean? We'll get into it with our Gary Patterson in just a moment, right here on Spooky South Coast. Don't look now, but Spooky South Coast is creeping up behind you right after this. I wasn't really dead. You remember when you were with the Beatles? And you were supposed to be dead? You play some song backwards and it'd say, like, Paul is dead. Take this, brother. May it serve you well. All right, welcome back into Spooky South Coast, Audio work of the silent assassin Matt Costa, guaranteeing that we will be sued by the mighty triumvirate that is uh, Michael Jackson, Yoko Ono, and Paul McCartney. So uh, we are talking with our Gary Patterson about the. Well, right now we're talking about the Paul is dead case, uh, whether or not Paul McCartney is departed and the person who we know and love as Sir Paul is actually an imposter. And uh, we'll talk more about other rock and roll legends and curses in the next hour. Um, now. Gary, we were talking before the break about the walrus, uh, the song I Am the Walrus, and some of the inner hidden meanings behind it. Uh, and, and as you said, you know, some people said that walrus was Greek for, for dead. Is that what you said? Greek for corpse. For corpse. And then uh, there was also speculation that the there was another word for walrus is morse. And if you take the E off it, it's mors, which is Latin for dead. I mean, there's all these different little inner readings to it, but on the whole, without reading into that, all those scenarios, what do you think the song I Am the Walrus is about, face value? Well, I think face value is that uh, John Lennon said that everyone was going through their songs trying to find all these hidden meanings, so let's make it really hard for them, and here's a song called I Am the Walrus, have fun with it, you know, and with Goo Goo Kachub and everything else with it, so uh, I think that, according to Lennon, it was just a collection of, of strange lines and, and put it in there to, to create a Lewis Carroll, a James Joyce type of literature feedback with the, with the whole idea. I don't think there's anything to it. I mean, I've heard that Googie Gachu was supposed to be from Finnegan's Wake, the last words that Humpty Dumpty said before the crash, okay? So you have that line. And then there's a reference uh, that came out in Life Magazine, which you can't really find a book on Scandinavian symbolism and Vikings, I suppose, but that walruses were supposed to be harbingers of death, and that when Viking hunters found a walrus, that they would turn back and go home. So the walrus is a very misunderstood creature, obviously in symbolism. But uh, I'm the walrus is one of the great ones. And also there was a, a myth perpetrated, too, that uh, if indeed Paul McCartney was involved in a car crash, if the actual car crash happened on a Tuesday and the autopsy was performed on Wednesday at 5 o'clock, and so therefore when he says stupid bloody Tuesday, he's referring to the the stupidity surrounding the circumstances of Paul McCartney's crash. Yeah, the stupid bloody Tuesday, according to the rumor that uh, Paul and Ringo had gotten into a major argument, and McCartney leaves the studio and gets in his Aston Martin and takes off, and the accident occurs as he left sometime before uh, midnight, and the accident would happen then, and then he was uh, pronounced dead on a Tuesday at 5 o'clock. So, I mean, you have that as, as one of the others, too. So, And, uh, you know, there's so much fun to this, like when uh, the White Album came out and Ringo had the song Don't Pass Me By, and he says, I'm sorry that I doubted you, I was so unfair, you were in a car crash, and you lost your hair, and that was supposed to be a reference to uh, a head injury, but if you know anyone from uh, Great Britain, they'll tell you that the phrase losing your hair means to lose your temper, <laughs> so, you know, uh, one person that you asked when you go out talk to someone, one person that uh, was pretty close to the Beatles, 
one who introduced John Lennon to Steve Sutcliffe. And he was telling me all the stories of putting the Beatles together and doing the Mercy Beat magazine. And, you know, he's really into the idea that when Sutcliffe died, the Beatles had gotten together and did a seance by the contacting. So, I mean, you got some spooky stuff there. But uh, but Bill's a really good source because he's still close to Paul McCartney today and Yoko and, and Cynthia, which I, I'm sure is pretty hard to be, you know, close to both wives. You know, yeah, exactly. Time. But he is, and he's, he's a pretty good insider. He really enjoyed the book, The Walrus is Paul. I'm trying to get him down and say, look, tell me the reason. I know you know. But then again, there's a part of me who doesn't want to force the issue with it. But, I mean, obviously he knew that there was that the Beatles had planted something. So that makes it kind of fun, too. And, and speaking of planting something, of course, the most famous rumor surrounding the I Am The Walrus song is that if you take the final minute or so, uh, as all this convoluted noise is coming together, you can supposedly reverse it, and you hear, Paul is dead. Well, if you listen to the end of it, without reversing anything on I Am The Walrus, if you listen to the end, there's some lines from uh, King Lear, and you'll hear these actors, and one actor says, bury my body. And then, a few seconds later, you hear a voice say, oh, untimely death. And then a voice says, what? Is he dead? As it ends up. And then, of course, you have the backward part, or it's, it's not really backwards, but you hear a chant where the Beatles are saying, everybody's got one. And a lot of people smell, say, the thing, everybody smokes pot or whatever, but it's yeah. everybody's got one. And when you play it backwards, uh, it mentions that phrase. It says, Paul is dead. It's like, Paul is dead, ha, ha, Paul is dead. So you hear that backwards. I think that's what you were talking about. Okay, now I don't uh, I don't listen to music backwards. It's just something that I have. I it freaks me out, and mm-hmm. uh, and I had, I had been listening to Revolution Number no. Nine prior to the show, and that just had me creeped out. But uh, our our producer here, the Silent Assassin, Matt Costa, has actually reversed the end of I Am the Walrus, and he's going to play it for us. Okay. So I might take my headphones off if it gets too much for me. But okay. Here we go. We're going to run that for you. If you're listening into it and you're trying to hear something, you can certainly hear things in there. Sure you can, especially uh, if someone tells you what to hear before it's played backwards. Well, I mean, we go through that in paranormal investigating with EVP work. Sure. You know, you never want to tell somebody what they're supposed to hear in an EVP. You want to get their you know, their impression. Exactly, exactly. And with that in mind, we actually have a lot of paranormal investigators that listen to our show, and they have sophisticated audio equipment, and uh, I'm sure we'll get in a, a lot of trouble legally. Who actually owns the rights right now to the Beatles' music? Uh, Michael Jackson. 
did he? I, I'd heard he was trying to sell it to Sony to try to make up some of his debt to them from his uh, his contract they tried to get out of. So uh, it may be in the process of being so, but I think he still wants to watch. Too. Right, well, you know, Mike, if you have to see us, you have to see us. We'll <laughs> take we'll take the publicity that comes along with it. But if anybody that has these audio programs, if you want to take that little clip and listen to it and try and see what you can find, do it. Send it back to us, and, and we'll play because. We'd love to get together with you sometime, Gary, and just break all this audio down. That would be and great. Maybe do like a little special where we can record it. And then once we get it in the can, then we can try to get the permission to actually air it somehow. Sure. I think that, you know, one thing you may check with, I mean, I know that with my attorney and copyright and everything else and Simon & Schuster, that if you're playing a clip and it's purposes for analysis for educational purpose, which you're doing to your audience, I don't think you're going to have a problem with that. Plus, you're not playing the whole song. You're not making it available. So... You know, so you know that can be recorded. I'm sure of that. So our, our science advisor Matt Moniz has been trying to convince me of that for a week, and for a week now I've been telling him we can't take the risk, we can't <laughs> take the chance. And so if if your legal department has been telling you this, and then we'll, we're we're going to go with their word, and, and so we'll definitely try to get together with you and uh, and, and break these down and analyze it. I mean, well, I can tell you this also: I've done hundreds of radio shows that have been on this topic, and I don't know of any that have ever gotten in trouble by doing it. So. Excellent. Does that make you feel better? Oh, absolutely. All right. That's and, great. And uh, we, uh, we're we coming up on a news break here. Uh, we have sure. to take a break at the top of the hour. And generally what we do is we do a segment starting off the second hour called The Week in Weird, where we read some of the stranger stories of the week. But because the subject matter that we're dealing with tonight is so weird and because it's so great for us to have an opportunity to combine our love of rock and roll and the strange and the paranormal, we're going to just can The Week in Weird and keep going with you uh, in the second hour with more stories about the Beatles and Leonard Skinner, the Allman Brothers, Jim Morrison, Buddy Holly, the Big Bopper, Richie Jones. We so much stuff that we can cover. And if you uh, can't hear the entire show and you want to catch some of it online later on, uh, we'll have it all posted up tomorrow at SpookySouthCoast.com on iTunes as well. We make it all available as a free podcast uh, for anybody that wants to listen. So, and, and Gary, uh, anytime too uh, as well if you want to take some of the the show and use it, you know, in your own circumstances feel free to do that as well. well thank you and uh, so just real quick before we hit the news break we've got about three minutes uh trying to finish up the idea of the walrus uh now in the song glass onion paul mccartney uh, i'm sorry john lennon comes straight out and tells us here's another clue for you all the walrus was paul mm-hmm. and then in the song god uh the song god he says that he was the walrus that's right i was the wa- I, I, I was the walrus and now i'm just john <laughs> So, so, I mean, they're having to play with the word walrus, obviously. I mean, when I think of the walrus, and I know of Lewis Carroll, I think of the walrus and the carpenter. You that's, know? that's what I always assumed the song was, that it was John's attempt at being Lewis Carroll-ish. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the walrus fools a bunch of oysters, you know. And I just wonder how many people were the oysters that took it all in and believed it. You know? So uh, that, <laughs> that's kind of interesting, too, isn't it? Absolutely. And and so in your final if you, in your final analysis of the, the walrus situation, uh, do you think that it just was something that gained a little bit of steam and they just kept it going? I think it was. And uh, the black walrus outfit, he was the only one in black, so the black symbol goes through with it. Uh, maybe a little Lewis Carroll play on the album cover that goes along with the, with the thing, too. And, you know, it made it a lot of fun. But I think what was really funny was when uh, Glass Onion came out in 68 on the White Album, and when uh, uh, Lennon sings, here's another clue for you all, what always puzzled me, was the reference to here's another clue because the rumors were not known about until 1969, a year later. So they'd already started right. planting the seeds. Exactly. So when Lennon says here's another clue for you all, that implies go back and find the other one. Exactly. Yeah. And no one knew about it until 69. 
So it's it's definitely. And as I was saying to to Matt Costa earlier tonight, that if it was an all pre-planned uh, idea, then that makes "I Am the Walrus" one of the greatest songs ever written. Oh, exactly. And uh, we'll talk more about some of the the Beatles' works. And I want to get back into the idea of, of uh, come together as well. We we touched upon that briefly. Uh, so we'll talk about that in the second hour. We'll wrap up the Beatles discussion, and then we'll get into more of it. And, of course, we invite you to join into the conversation, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. We're going to take a break right now for the CBS News. We'll be back on the other side with more with our Gary Patterson here on Spooky South Coast. There's so much paranormality here. Spooky South Coast. It sounded like you said a name. Spooky South Coast. Did anyone else hear that? Spooky South Coast is back. Made the hairs in the back of my neck stand up. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa, and the science advisor, Matt Moniz, commonly referred to by Christopher Balzano as the science assassin, which uh, he's pretty proud of that nickname, but I'm a little bit worried about it because it sounds like you're, like, killing science. And I think that's far from what you're doing. You're proving science. You're uh, contributing to science, and you're helping make the paranormal more legitimate. And then Costa and I come along to reverse all that hard work. <laughs> all right, welcome back to Spooky South Coast. We do talk about the paranormal here, and tonight we're talking about the strange and unusual, the legends, the myths, the curses of rock and roll with our guest, R. Gary Patterson. And we will get right back into that in just a minute. Before, so before we do that, we have a couple of announcements to read for you. Uh, we have a meeting coming up. Next Friday night, from the Cape and Islands Paranormal Research Society, a multimedia paranormal presentation. Enjoy the warmth of Cape Cod Community College as you sit back and watch three videos about the paranormal produced and filmed locally. The first video is called Ecosystem, produced by Dragon Art Entertainment. This 27-minute video is about a writer who needs to get away from the city, but what happens to him in a bed and breakfast in New Hampshire will scar him for the rest of his life. The next video is a personal favorite of the Spooky Crew, Inside the Bridgewater Triangle, produced by Dartmouth resident Aaron Kadju, this 33-minute video takes a look at a 200-square-mile region in southeastern Massachusetts with a long history of strange, paranormal, and sometimes evil activity. And I can tell you now, it's very rare to be able to go out and see a presentation of Inside the Bridgewater Triangle. I think the last time it was shown was at the Mass Monster Mass, Mass, yeah. So we definitely want to get out there and see that while you can. And then uh, the final video is Earth Mysteries and Sacred Sites, produced by Virginia Truart. Orgy. Uh, they will show only a portion of the video uh, about portal hauntings and the science behind them, uh, and all three of these videos have footage or interviews from Capers. If you watch the Earth Mysteries and Sacred Sites video and you are interested in seeing the entire thing, Capers does have copies of it there for sale. And they also usually have uh, some really good uh, books by Troy Taylor there for sale as well, so uh, they'll take care of you if you want to explore the topics more. Uh, so it is January 26th, next Friday night, at Lecture Hall B of Cape Cod Community College from 7 to 9 p.m. Admission is free, but they do appreciate any donations. Uh, they also have some refreshments usually there as well, so throw them a couple bucks to help uh, defray the cost there. Uh, the, car, uh, the college is located uh, off 
exit six off uh, Route 132 in Barnstable, and then go to lot number six, follow the CAPA sign. For any information, you can contact CAPA's email, the society at capas.com. And also next uh, next Saturday night, uh, if you want to make the trip down to New York, such as Matt Moniz will be doing, the Intruders Foundation, uh, Bud Hopkins Intruders Foundation, will resume its regular program of seminars with a presentation by Anna Jamerson, one of the authors of Connections, in which she will discuss her extraordinary UFO abduction experiences. Anna and her friend Beth Collins met in the late 1980s and subsequently discovered that they were both undergoing UFO abductions. I know both of them. They're old friends of mine. And uh, we, you weren't going to abduct them, right? Uh, no. Because the theory is out there that you're an alien. But we'll, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, they, they'll talk about their experiences undergoing these abductions, uh, and they will recount what, in many ways, perhaps one of the most dramatic and complex series of UFO abductions ever. Her joint abductions with Beth Collins comprise a central section of C.D.B. Bryant's much-acclaimed book, Close Encounters of the Fourth Kind, and her talk at the Intruders Foundation will be accompanied by a remarkable group of illustrations by Collins as well. So uh, the seminar will be held next Saturday uh, at A.R.E., located in the second floor of 241 West 30th Street, New York, New York. And so if you'd like more information, you can visit the intrudersfoundation.org, and you can find out more. You can also call them at 212-645-5278. And, of course, we'll have links up for these events on SpookySouthCoast.com as well. So, and uh, let's get back. And we're going to skip the week in weird this week because we have so much to cover with our Gary Patterson. We'll get right back into the discussion with him. And, uh, Gary, uh, I don't know if you're aware, but there is that theory that Matt Moniz is an alien. So he could be talking to an actual space creature tonight. That's a first for me. That's great. <laughs> well, you know, uh, speaking of the Beatles and space aliens, there is a long-standing rumor that John Lennon had interactions with a, a UFO and the occupants of one. Is, is that something that you've come across in your research as well? I've heard that. And uh, I've also heard that Jimi Hendrix had some same experiences with that. So. I, I still believe Jimi Hendrix is from another planet. <laughs> Just with the innovative styles that he had, he came to this planet to bring us a new way to play the guitar. Well, I'll tell you, it's, it's interesting. And, of course, there's uh, the new great story behind the movie that's supposed to be made on Jimi Hendrix. And I can tell you it's a major bloodletting right now to see if it will ever happen. It's strange. So that's another strange story we'll have to talk about sometime. Well, what, what exactly is the is going on with the movie? Is Oh, it's a series of lawsuits over who has the right to do the movie and uh, who represents the family and who owns the, the the uh, Hendrix catalog was it Purple Haze Records or was it given to Al Hendrix? So, ever since Jimi Hendrix died, I mean, it's, it's always been a war over who owns the rights to his music and his image. So it's it's still going on. I was contacted uh, to see a consultant uh, for this, and uh, I just I'm staying out of the whole thing and just watching <laughs> it go on. It's a, it's a nightmare. So, and, and is there any formal plans of a project? Because I had heard that there was one actually filming. Well, but if it hasn't reached that point yet, uh, the one that you heard is uh, it's probably the one I'm talking about. But it's it's nowhere close to to even happening. I mean, it's it's going to be a long, long time. I can tell you that. I mean, I I always thought casting alone would be a problem. <laughs> well, it would be. I mean, who would play Hendrix? Uh, uh, I can't think of anybody that could. That's the thing. And uh, so, I mean, I've heard Lenny Kravitz was done it too, though. So. And, uh, so he was great that. in that Burger King commercial when he was like 14, so I can understand where that would come from. <laughs> I, I can too. That it's interesting. Though. So we'll we'll keep our eyes on that one and see what happens. All right. Well, and speaking of Jimi Hendrix, uh, something that I wanted to get into with, uh, and I've heard you refer to it as the 27 Club, mm -hmm. or just the club, and that's these numerous rock stars 
that have passed away at the age of 27, either by their own hand or their own uh, doing or undoing, as the case may be, and also by other strange circumstances. That's true. I mean, it seems to, uh, if you're going to be a rock star, when you hit 27, you sort of need to stay close to home and don't fly in small planes and uh, watch how you drive and never at any time play your electric guitar when you're in the bathtub. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's, it's really odd. And, uh, you know, when I did uh, Hellhounds on the Trail, and eventually when I did Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll, Miss Legend, the thing that fascinated me was uh, the whole legend and mystique of Robert Johnson, because I considered him to be the first great pop culture urban legend. You know, the idea that he waited at the crossroads on Highway 49 and 61 and struck up a deal with the devil and sold his soul to be able to play the blues. And, you know, he died tragically at a young age. He was poisoned. Uh, it took him three days to die, and according to the legends, he died on his hands and knees howling like a dog. And uh, he died at 27. And then it seems like in 1969, it started that a number of rock stars started passing away at 27. And the first one was Brian Jones, and of course the founder of the Rolling Stones, and knowing they were so basically blues purists, I thought, you know, that was pretty odd. But after Brian Jones died, the next one was Jimi Hendrix, he was 27. Then Janis Joplin died, she was 27. Then Jim Morrison died, he was 27. And then Pigpen and the Grateful Dead, he died at 27. And he, Blind Al Wilson, he died at 27. Pete Ham and Bedfinger died at 27. Chris Bell and Big Star died at 27. Kurt Cobain died at 27. Kristen Pfaff and Hole died at 27. Jason Thurst, who was the bassist for Pennywise, died at 27. And the list goes on. There's even more. And, you know, when you take a look at it, I mean, it's just really odd that that many people died at that age. Of course, you know, a lot of people go into numerology and they go into astrology and and they say that in astrology, there are lives based on 27-year cycles where we experience growth and enlightenment, and that in numerology, a number two is involved with people who seek love and acceptance, and number seven was the escapist, who sometimes maybe escape through drugs and al drug and alcohol, so you can look at how many deaths at 27 occurred with that. And uh, the sum of two and seven is nine, which is the number of completeness, since it takes nine months for a baby to develop, and Nine is the number of initiation from one stage in the high spiritual uh, development. And when you take a look at the number nine, when you take a look at the Beatles, I mean, John Lennon was obsessed with the number nine. And, I mean, his birthday was on October 9th, and he was born in the city of Liverpool, nine ways. His address was 72. Uh, memoir, so seven plus two is nine. He, uh, he met the, the Beatles first were discovered by Brian Epstein on November 9th. And that was in 1960, and or 1961. And then you had nine years to 1961. That's 1970, which was the year the Beatles broke up. Mm -hmm. uh, and the next year, 1971, John and Yoko moved to the United States. You had nine years to 1971. That's 1980. That was the year John was murdered. Uh, his address was the Dakota, which is West 72nd Street. Seven plus two is nine. Wow. One of their apartments is number 27. Two plus seven is nine. John slept with a number nine above his uh, on the wall above his bed because he knew that number nine was uh, his highest spiritual number in numerology, so that happened. And then, of course, on uh, December 8th, he was shot by Mark David Chapman, and he was shot on 72nd Street. That was nine. They rushed him to the hospital. And when he was in the hospital, it was Roosevelt Hospital, which has nine letters. John Lennon was born at 6.30 p.m., 6 plus 3 is nine. He was pronounced officially dead at 11.07. 7 plus 1 plus 1 is nine. And the address of Roosevelt Hospital is not evident. 
that is uh, that's pretty uh, a little too eerie to all be coincidence. Uh, well, you know, I think that when you do coast to coast, they talk about there's no such thing as coincidence. Which you know, you may think about that. It's really odd. But let me give you another coincidence. We're talking about the Beatles and the recording of the album. Next time you get a chance, look at the Magical Mystery Tour album mm-hmm. and turn to the picture where John Lennon's standing there with this huge mustache, smiling like a walrus, I guess you would say. And in the back, there's this uh, little, looks like a chalkboard. And one of the be- uh, Paul is Dead rumors is that there's, the sign says uh, that there's a time the bus leaves, but it never comes back, which of course is the time of the accident. But written on this company's board is this message that says the best way to go is by M and D C, and the rumors when they were going through Paul is Dead is this M D C was supposed to be a funeral parlor that uh, had handled McCartney's body, but M D C. Now think about this: Lennon standing next to a sign that says the best way to go is by M D C, which just happens to be the exact initials of Mark David Kaplan. And think of this: Do you know when the Magical Mystery Tour album was released? Uh, Nineteen? No, not exactly. Let me give you the, the date: December eighth. 1967, 13 years to the day that John Lennon would be murdered by Mark David Chapman. Wow. <laughs> Coincidence? Ah, I, I I have to agree with George. You know, <laughs> that's the way I tend to look at things. But and some of this stuff, when you do get into it, you can dismiss it as coincidence. But when you can build a case like that, it's it's a little bit more of the hand of fate. It is. I, th- I think so. But I mean, just the whole idea is. That was the creepiest thing about Paul's Dead, that when you notice that, you know, because, I mean, obviously no one would have known in 1967. It was just that strange coincidence. And while they're messing around with the fake death of Paul McCartney, they're kind of foreshadowing the actual death of John Lennon. That's right. That's probably one of the ultimate ironies, huh? Yeah, and <laughs> I almost wonder if, uh, if maybe some of this might have influenced Mark David Chapman, too. I, well, I understand he had his own, you know, sick reasons for what he did, but... Maybe some of these signs he caught on to and was pointing to him. It's kind of strange, isn't it? I think that the thing with uh, Chapman was that he was just very upset about Lennon being a phony, you know, that he was supposed to be an activist, and, and then how he wasn't. And that was when he decided to kill him, which is, you know, just one of the, the strangest things. Because I'm going to tell you this, truth. I mean, we'll just have great confession through the night. This is the first time. I think it's the first time I've ever told this story. And uh, I was at a I have a lot of friends who do Beatle conventions, okay, and I used to speak at a lot of them. And so I was I was visiting some friends in Nashville, and I get this phone call that someone had found out my hotel and they call my room, and it was a guy who was brokering the album that Mark David Chapman signed the night John Lennon or Chapman had Lennon signed the night Lennon was murdered, mm-hmm. and the album cover was placed by a flower. Potter, I guess, out by the Dakota and the police came. They took the album cover and they dusted it with fingerprints, all the powders on it. And the person who found the album cover and handed it to the police was the person who was given control of the album cover. It was his property. Well, the album cover went up for sale. Okay? And it came with uh, still the forensic dusting was on the album cover. It had a letter signed by the police department verifying it was the official Album cover that was that Lennon had signed the night he was murdered, and that the person's name was used on it, and it was sold. And this guy had, had called me to ask me if I would uh, be interested in helping sell this album cover, and the whole thing just sort of made me really. You know? yeah. I, did, I didn't want to see it. I didn't want to touch it. I didn't want to know anything about it. And I mean, it was he 
in the well, it, it was around two hundred thousand dollars is what they wanted for it. Wow. But I mean, we'd be like buying a rifle that Oswald killed Kennedy or something. Exactly. Like that. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's too much of a terrible thought. But you know, sometimes in in this business, when you do a lot of radio and you talk, and, and people find you pretty easily, and uh, you know, that that you have a lot of strange things that happen, and, and that's probably one of the strangest things that's happened to me. Is someone giving me the opportunity to help sell this album. That, Essentially, help somebody prop it up. The exactly of an icon. Oh, terrible, terrible. So you know, obviously, I, I said, don't call me back again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't want to. Don't hear about this at all. And it's a lot of people uh, forget that, or, or it's overlooked a lot of times uh, with with Mark David Chapman, is that he actually did approach Lennon as he came out of the Dakota to get the autograph, so that when he was coming back from the studio later on, that he. Uh, you know, when he saw Chapman again, it was like, oh, hey, how you doing? You yeah, know. smiled at him, walked by him. And then Chapman yelled, Lennon, and shoots him, you know, fires five times. And Lennon had always told a lot of his closest friends that he had dreams of dying a violent death because he felt that in his Buddhist state that karma would clear him to his soul by making up for all the things that he had done that he felt was wrong in his early life. So... He had had visions of being shot. He, he, he viewed being shot as a form of modern-day crucifixion, which is really odd because he'd had premonitions about this, you know, obviously. He talked to Fred Spoon about it. And uh, I thought, well, you know, that's pretty odd. And then, I mean, if you talk about curses, I mean, one of the apartments that Lennon owned at the Dakota was one of the, the rooms that was used in the film Rosemary's Baby. And if you remember the scene in Rosemary's Baby where girl supposedly jumped from the window and she was found dead on the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. That was the exact spot where Lennon was shot as you go into the room. Mm-hmm. And when William Castle did the film Rosemary's Baby, Polanski was the director. And when Polanski came to New York to shoot it, he asked uh, Castle if he could buy a, or rent a house for he and Sharon in California. So it was William Castle who rented the house at Celio Drive that Sharon Tate was murdered by the Manson family. So you talk about the curse sort of like Rosemary's Baby that follows New, uh, the New York thing all the way to the West Coast where Sharon Tate was murdered. And after Rosemary's Baby came out, uh, Castle got a letter from a fan putting a curse on him for, uh, claiming that he had unleashed the Antichrist. So all these terrible things started happening with William Castle. He had uh, severe kidney stones that caused a major infection. They thought his life might be in danger. He was in a hospital. At the same time, they brought in the composer of the soundtrack for Rosemary's Baby, who had had an accident and was in a coma, and he died while William Castle was in the hospital. And Castle was convinced that something had been unleashed in this movie. And then, of course, Sharon Tate's murder in California had sort of a link to that. So when John Lennon had found that his apartment that he just purchased had to do with Rosemary's Baby, he wrote the word Helter Skelter on the wall and pushed a file cabinet in front of it. So he was very much aware of it. And, And by the way, before they went into the apartment, when they finally got it, uh, they did a seance. And uh, supposedly, I think the person who owned that apartment was, was uh, Jack Ryan and his wife, Jesse. And uh, they said they contacted the spirit, and the spirit said, you know, it's all right for the Lennons to move in. So they contacted Jack Ryan's daughter and explained to her that their parents you know, said it was all right for them to live there. I think it freaked their daughter out pretty well. Oh, it's such a strange call to get out of the blue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Oh, we just talked to your parents, and they, they give them permission to move into their old apartment. So. I, I guess if it's John Lennon, though, it makes it a little bit easier to accept. So. Yeah, I think it would be. You know, and I mean, there were ghosts. You're talking about UFOs. I know that one of the 
famous character of Dakota was this little girl dressed up in a 19th century dress, and she would bounce a ball. And they were restoring it, and a workman saw her, and she turns to the workman, and she says, today's my birthday. Well, it just freaks him out if he sees her disappear. So he rushes and tells the other workman, and they laugh at him. And then two hours later, the guy falls down an elevator shaft and dies. Lennon had heard the story, so when Sean was there, he would tie up the elevator shaft so that Sean wouldn't fall down the thing because he had heard the story of uh, the famous ghost of the Dakota, the little girl. So there's some pretty good stories of the paranormal with uh, a number of rock stars, I suppose. Now, is the, and that could be a whole other visit from you, Gary, too, I think. <laughs> okay. Uh, some of the stories that I've heard, but is the Dakota still a private residence? Is it still uh, apartments? Yeah, very private. Very right. private. It's an exclusive high-end clientele. Very exclusive. It's hard to get in. I have a friend who uh, sells a lot of real estate in New York. She told me she said, look, you know, I'm going to have uh, one of the apartments for sale. I'll bring you up and we'll pretend that you want to buy it or you're going to look at it. I'll, I'll show it to you. And I thought, well, that might be cool. You know, to get in there and see it. But last time I was in New York last year, I, no one had one up for sale, so I'll have to wait. Next time I come up, we'll have to hang out there. We, we, got, a, we got a plan already forming in our heads as okay. we talk about this ghost. Uh, we 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 know some people, so we uh, we might be able to swing getting not only getting in there but maybe getting in there with some uh, scientific ghost hunting equipment as well. Well, from what I understand, uh, John Lennon was the only person ever murdered at the Dakota, and uh, Boris Karloff got there. He was at the Dakota. A number of people obviously passed away there, but Lennon was the only murderer. I remember he was doing his last interview with the Playboy interview, Lady Shepherd. While he was talking, there was a gunshot fired outside. And Lennon stops and turns over and says, oh, another murder at the Rue Dakota. And he was dead the next day. I mean, it's kind of odd. So Absolutely. It, it, it was. So, I mean, and of course, Lennon was really into the New Age materials and all this, you know. And, uh, so, obviously, I mean, do you remember the thing they did where the seance to contact John Lennon? I, d I remember hearing about that. Yeah, we talked about it, what, earlier this year? Or? Mm -hmm. I mean... It was kind of strange, but I know that Bill Harry in London, he wants to do that because he wants to, he was John Lennon's best friend, one of his best friends. So there's another opportunity for the past. Yeah, and we're always looking uh, for the possibility of, you know, examining some of these cases and some of these stories and seeing what kind of uh, evidence and proof we can come up with. It'd be great. And, and, of course, if we do it, we definitely want you to come along. Well, of course. <laughs> We'd have a great time with that. I got a question for you. I have a friend of mine that uh, died as a result of a helicopter crash. I knew Stevie Ray Vaughan. What do you know about him? Stevie Ray Vaughan. I know that Stevie believed that he, he loved Jimi Hendrix, but he was sort of terrified that he would have an early death like Hendrix. And I know that uh, at his last, next to the last performance, he was really freaked out because a fan gave him a portrait of Jimi Hendrix, and he thought, oh, my gosh, you know, fine. Now, if you believe, when you go back to the Robert Johnson thing, the Robert Johnson songs like Crossroad Blues, do you know the very last song that Stevie Ray Vaughan played in concert when he just clapped in and screamed at everybody else? Uh, he was blazing away so fast that Eric Clapton said that he had never heard him play any better and that he did not to anyone else to take solos because he let Stevie do the whole thing. And the last song that Stevie Ray Vaughan played was Sweet Home Chicago, which was written by Robert Johnson. Yeah. And then the helicopter crash. And Stevie Ray died 
on the anniversary of his father's death, which was kind of strange as well. And, uh, you know, but, uh, what did they call I forgot what his father's name was. They called him Big, Big Jim or something like that. But he died on the anniversary of his father's death. And, I mean, I thought that was strange. But to, to go out on your swan song with a Robert Johnson song, a guy who was, you know, the father of the Delta Blues, I mean, that's kind of eerie because it sort of does that link to Robert Johnson again. Now, refresh my memory a bit here. Uh, was Eric Clapton involved in that crash, or was he supposed to be on the helicopter? He was on another helicopter. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he was chosen by fate, wasn't he? It could have been Clapton. I think it was foggy, wasn't it? Wasn't that the thing? Yes. I want to say that it was, I don't know if it was Clapton himself, or I remember hearing some reference in the media of, of Clapton alluding that when the death of his son Connor happened, I think a year or two later, that uh, he said that it was his penance for not being in the helicopter with Stevie Ray. You know, isn't that interesting? You know, I mean, uh, poor Eric Clapton. I mean, a lot of guys, you know, you talk about the blues, and they say you have to play, you have to suffer to play the blues. He, he has. Oh, Eric Clapton has earned the right to play the blues. I mean, if you know anything about his early life, I mean, his mother was a teenager. She'd had an affair with a Canadian soldier who was married. When Eric was born, they told him that his grandmother was his mother, that his, that his real, real mother was his sister. And that goes through trauma. He brought his guitar. He was a loner. He had set out. He played these little blues records so they could play them note for note. I have a good friend whose name is Jamie Oldacre, who was Eric Clapton's drummer from 1974 to 1990. And he has this incredible video of uh, the train tour that they did through Europe and a lot of interview footage that no one's ever seen. And there's a, I'll, I'll share the story with you. Clapton's telling the story of Jimi Hendrix, and he said that he had just purchased a left-handed Fender Stratocaster. He, he planned on giving it to Hendrix, and they had gone to see Sly and the Family Stone perform, and that he and Jimmy were supposed to jam with Sly Stone that night, which was in September of 1970. September 17th to be exact. And he said he looked up and he saw Jimmy in his box seat and they waved at each other. But that night, Jimmy never showed. And that was the night Hendrix died. He was dead on September 18th. And Clapton looks into the camera and he says, and he left him with it. He left him with his left-handed guitar. And he just starts crying. I mean, he said, I don't know why he left him. He should have taken me with him. So this was Hendrix. I mean, just aside from, from Clapton's personal life and his growing up, just the tragedy that I had to experience... Uh, when he became a professional musician, like you said, with Hendrix, he was close with Hendrix. Uh, he was also um, uh, Dwayne Allman, close with well, Dwayne Allman. Well, let, let, look, you got Dwayne Allman. Look at the dominoes, all right? Dwayne Allman died in a motorcycle accident. We'll talk about the Allman Brothers first a little later. But Allman's dead. Carl Radle is dead. He died. Jim Gordon, the drummer from Derek and Dominoes, was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, hearing voices. The voices he internalizes is his mother, and his mother's not providing him food, not letting him sleep, not letting him play the drums in his, his uh, psychotic state. Wow. He goes to her house, he knocks on the door, she answers the door, he hits her in the head with a hammer and murders her, kills his own mother, and he's in prison. And they take him to the criminally insane hospital in California. He's on medications now, but when Clapton recut Layla, Jim Gordon wrote the piano part. So Clapton wins a Grammy for the slow acoustic version of Grammy of, uh, of Layla, and so does Jim Gordon. So I think he's the only rock star who ever won a Grammy while he was in prison. Wow. He's still alive. So look at the tragedy there. Keith Rell of the Yardbirds, the lead singer, uh, is electrocuted in his bathtub with his guitar. So look at the number of musicians that Hendrix played with that have died and left him there. And Carl Radle's the one who kept him 
Jamie Oldacre and Dick Sims down to Atlanta do 421 Ocean Boulevard. And then when Clapton fired the band, he sent them a telegram. And the telegram just says, or said, I have decided to dissolve the band forthwith, sincerely, Eric Clapton. Didn't even tell him, just sent him a telegram. And it's just, and, and it still continues. I mean, uh, you know, everybody that he's close to, we've all heard the stories of the strange relationship between uh, uh, George Harrison and his wife and Eric Clapton. And <laughs> they were very close uh, no matter what, though. I mean, it's, it's a lot of people don't know it's on my guitar, Gently Weeps. That's, that's Eric Clapton playing the guitar. And Eric Clapton was the first musician to play on a Beatle record. The Beatles. So he was definitely very close to George Harrison, and then he loses George Harrison. It's just the, the the suffering never ends for this guy. And as you said, that you know you have to suffer to play the blues. It does come through in his music, but he he has certainly suffered. Well, he has. And someday when we have some time, I'll have to tell you the true story of Layla and uh, what happened with that with that marriage because I've got the inside scoop. Excellent. But we'll talk about that later. Okay. Well, why don't we take a break here? We'll burn off the rest of our commercials. I just said we can get into the Almond Brothers curse. We'll talk about some of the mysterious circumstances around that. We'll talk about the urban legend that has developed around that. Uh, we'll also hit on Leonard Skinner, of course, uh, some of the circumstances surrounding that. And uh, we'll talk about the day the music died as well. So stay tuned. We'll be back here with more with our Gary Patterson here on Spooky South Coast. And I said, hello, Satan. I believe it's time to go. Spooky South Coast is back. Me and the devil. Side Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. I, I just, I, I feel bad there. I can't talk over Robert Johnson. Uh, and, you know, somebody being a rock and roll fan my entire life growing up, and it took uh, until my teenage and later years to realize the blues connections. And as Gary said, it does all start. Not only this 27 curse, this 27 club, uh, but it does. So much of rock and roll does start with Robert Johnson and what he did. And even bands uh, today are still recognizing his genius. And as I said to Matt Moniz during the break, talking about Stevie Ray Vaughan, there's certain talents that when they come into this world and when they become known, uh, you can almost tell it's predetermined that there's too much, too much talent and that it's going to flame out. You know what I mean? And, and uh, Robert Johnson certainly one of those talents, underappreciated in his own time, but uh, recognized now as the father of adult blues. Uh, Gary, we uh, we were we were talking before you mentioned John Lennon predicting his own death, and uh, before we get into the Allman Brothers curse, let's just mention Lennon Skinner real quick. And uh, Ronnie Van Zant actually predicted his own death. Is that is that uh, what you've heard? He said that he would never live to be thirty. And <laughs> he cut it real close too, didn't he? Yes, he did. And you know the other thing. Uh, you talk about premonition. The plane that Leonard Skinner was on, they left South Carolina on their way to uh, Louisiana to do their show. They had problems with the plane, and Cassie Gaines didn't want to fly. She was going to ride in the equipment set. And Ronnie Van Zandt goes up to her and he says, Cassie, listen, honey. She said, you know, when your time's up, your time's up. If you're meant to go, you're going to go. It doesn't matter if you're in this plane. It doesn't matter if you're in set. So she gets on the plane. She's still her brother Steve Gaines is still, Van Zant's still, the road manager Gene Kilpatrick's still. A lot of the band is really uh, injured and there's a, a lot of numbers of things that uh, have happened that, you know, made it made it 
uh, one of the background singers in, in the band, Joe Billingsley, had called Alan Collins that morning. She had a dream about the plane crashing. She had a premonition. And she said, Alan, you know, don't be on the plane. You can't fly in the plane. And, and she was supposed to meet him in Louisiana in the plane crash. So there were premonitions in the plane crash on October 20th, 1977. And, of course, you know the name of the plane. They called it Freebird. It was a plane. Do you know who the song Freebird was written for? Uh, from what I understand, wasn't it actually originally written as a wedding song, but then the, it was intended to be a wedding song, and then it took on... Oh, the fast part where it comes up at the end. The song was a tribute to Dwayne Allman mm-hmm. because of the slide guitar part on it. And what's really odd, you know, is uh, it came very close to crashing on the day that Dwayne Allman died because uh, the plane crash was on October 20th and Allman died on October 29th. So it was like, you know, nine days away from uh, being the anniversary of Dwayne Allman's death. So some things come up in this strange synchronicity with it. And of course, the album uh, Three Survivors came out three days before the crash. And if you remember the album cover, we had Steve Gaines and Ronnie Van Zandt, and Steve Gaines was basically covered in flames. And the families were so upset that they came out with a black cover for Three Survivors. And uh, I know that on the inside they had these little things that you can cut out, and one said, be a survivor. And, well, you know, fortunately for the band, a number of them did survive. But, you know, right now, uh, Leon Wilkerson is the last one to pass away, so... You've got Gary Robinson and uh, Billy Powell are the only two actual uh, founding members still in the band. I mean, I know Otter McPyle has created some problems because he told the story of Kathy Gaines Road being cut, which wasn't true. And so he's been sort of kicked out of any relationship with anything else. And I guess you could say Ed King's still alive in Nashville, who's been the founding member. So it seems like that band's had a lot of bad luck. I know Billy Powell, I guess, on VH1 claimed that uh, he actually saw Ronnie Van's skull, like, bashed in. Oh, yeah, and, and a lot of it, I mean, it wasn't true. And made some, I guess he was trying to, to make some good copy there, because I did a series of VH1 called VH1 Confidential. Mm-hmm. And uh, I knew they were putting together the, the segment on Lenny Skinner. I think it was called Uncivil War, is what they did. And that was where that all came out. But, you know... Uh, there were two other things I think that was kind of interesting about Lenny Skinner. They had a guitar tech whose name was Chuck Flowers and a drum tech whose name was Raymond Watkins. And they were fired the day of the plane crash uh, in South Carolina because of a hotel bill they'd run up. So after the crash, Chuck Flowers committed suicide with a rifle that was given to him by Ronnie Van Zandt. And then Watkins was killed in a domestic dispute with his wife. And then uh, Alan Collins had terrible luck. I know that his wife Kathy died from a miscarriage in a movie theater. And Judy Van Zandt was in the same theater at the same time. And in 1986, Alan Collins crashes his car into a tree. His girlfriend's killed, and he's paralyzed from the waist down. And he was guilty of DUI. And you remember the song, That Smell, where it says the smell of death around you? That was the opening song on Street Survivor. Uh, the line says, whiskey bottles, brand new cars, oak tree, you're in my way. It's almost exactly like a premonition of what happened to Alan Collins. But the strange thing was they had written a song for Gary Rosington. And Rosington was the one who survived. So if you take a look at a lot of the bad luck that went with that, I mean, yeah, there were premonitions and, you know, there were just some, some terrible things. And then a few years ago, grave uh, robbers tried to get Ronnie Van Zant's coffin and see James Ashes in Jacksonville, Florida. And they pull out Van Zandt's coffin, and the police stop them in time, but they had pulled the coffin and dropped some of Stephen Gaines' ashes. And I've heard that, and this is, you know, you talk about collectors. It was a bet 
over was Ronnie Van Zant Berry wearing his Neil Young t-shirt. And there was a bed on it, from what I understand. They never found who tried to break into the grave, and now the bodies have been moved. But, you know, it's just strange. I mean, uh, you talk about the weak and weird. You know, we have the rock and weird, too, you know? Well, there's, there's plenty of stories coming out, you know. One I was talking about, uh, my, my father is probably one of the world's biggest Almond Brothers fans. And uh, actually took me to see Dickie Betts this well, I took him to see Dickie Betts this summer and it was really my first experience seeing uh, any member or former member of the Allen Brothers live. And an incredible experience, but he, he was talking to me about the urban legends that have developed around that band. And of course, uh, both Dwayne Allman and Barry Oakley, the, their deaths are very similar, and almost in similar methods, but the urban legend has become such that now the way it's told is that they died, same intersection, one year exactly to the day. And that's not entirely correct, right? No, it's not. But let me tell you an interesting story on that. We'll set it up a little bit. Um, first of all, i got to tell you that I was lucky enough to see the original Allman Brothers band twice when I was very young, and uh, with Dwayne Allman, everything. It was incredible. And one of the things that I remember was that the Allman Brothers, this happened in October 29, 1970. That was the date. Dwayne Allman was in Nashville, Tennessee. They were performing, and they had an opium over they rush into the Nashville Hospital, and his fingertips had turned blue. So the doctor meets the band in the emergency room, and he says, Look, guys, I don't think there's anything I can do. He's too far gone. He's not going to make it. And when he said that, Barry Oakley just goes berserk. He rushes out into the, into the parking lot of the hospital. He falls on his knees. He looks up to heaven and says, God, God, just give him one more year. Just one more year to live. Just give him one more year to play his music. Just one more year, God. And he starts pleading over and over again. This goes on for about 10 minutes. The doctor comes out of the emergency room. He tells the band, he says, look, I don't know what, what happened, but he's going to make it. Well, guess what? Wayne Allman died on October 29, 1971, one year to the day of the drug overdose in Nashville. And he was killed in a motorcycle accident. And one year and 13 days later, Gary Oakley was killed in a motorcycle accident a few hundred feet away from the intersection a year and 13 days. Both members were 24 years old. Wayne Allman struck a wrecking truck with a huge wrecking ball on the back and died from internal hemorrhages. Uh, the driver of the truck was 24. Dwayne Allman was 24. Gary Oakley was 24, and he slammed his, his Triumph motorcycle into a, a bus, and the driver of the bus was and one of the strangest things, and this is what I've been working on, trying to get someone who's close enough to tell me the answer. One of the rumors is that Dwayne Allman's body, like James Brown, was not buried for almost a year. Now, James Brown, you know, he's still in storage, too, but Allman, they'd kept him for a year, and it was like he was waiting on Barry Oakley, and they buried him side by side at Roseville Cemetery. Now, wasn't the, the story goes that uh, Barry Oakley didn't die right away? No. Uh, matter of fact, after that accident, he was walking around. He walked away from the accident. Sure. You know, and, and he's complaining of his, of his head hurting. And then they rushed him to the hospital later. So, yeah, he was walking around. So it wasn't instantaneous. Of course, you know, it took Dwayne a while to become that good, too. And, and on the idea of urban legends that have surrounded this, uh, this incident, uh, the Eat a Peach album that came out subsequently is rumored to be tied into Dwayne Allman's death. Is, is that anything that you can confirm? Oh, I can tell you the complete story. Uh, it was assumed that the album cover was called Eat a Peach because Dwayne Allman was killed when he hit a peach bed. Is that what you heard? 
that's one of the, yeah one of the myths. Okay, that's not true. Matter of fact, the album cover "Eat a Peach" came from a quote going on today. When the Almonds came back on tour, I think it was a one of the writers for Rolling Stone or one of the magazines asked the Almond Brothers what they were going to do for the the war effort or what they were going to do, you know, to, to get in there against the Vietnam thing. And, and Almond said, "Well, what we're going to do is that when we get back home, we're going to pick a lick and we're going to eat a peach for tea." So that's where the eat a peach album. And they, they say that the, the truck on the front album cover, uh, Under the mm-hmm. Giant Peach, is uh, signifying Dwayne Allman's death. And I don't know if that's reading too much into things, but it is kind of strange to uh, to put that on your album cover after what happened. Oh, it would be. The, the truck that Allman hit had a wrecking ball on the back. It was like a wrecker. And his, the motorcycle flew up and landed on him. And uh, that's where his internal injuries came from, his shoulder. So... The truck wasn't the same. I mean, I know they have a peach truck. Of course, George is known as the peach brother as well. But uh, they play a lick and eat a peach for tea. That's the that's the quote that's been taken out of it. And if you also think about the Allman Brothers, they've had terrible luck with bass players. Haven't they? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Alan Woody was old. I was just going to mention that. Just died in 2000. Uh, Lamar Williams, the bassist, uh, who took uh, Barry Oakley's place, passed away on October 29, 1981. Uh, which just happens. Oh, I'm sorry, he didn't die on that day, but he was taken to the hospital and he had cancer surgery for Agent Orange on the same day that Dwayne Allman had died, 10 years on the anniversary of Dwayne Allman's death, and he died from the complications that were discovered on that day. And, and I mean, it's just, it's just strange material. And now, Alan Woody's death was ruled at the time as unknown causes. Has there been any determination since? I believe they, it was uh, substance abuse is what it, what it turned into. I mean, unfortunately, most of the time when these rock stars are yeah. found to be died of unknown causes or sometimes even natural causes, it's actually narcotics that are involved. And it's usually referred to as death by misadventure. <laughs> and you remember the album Southern Crime? Yes. Okay, the Allman Brothers are standing in a crossroads. And the story goes there's seven turns to leave the crossroads. So it's kind of eerie that they're standing in this crossroads like Robert Johnson from Highway 49, Highway 61. And the, the rumor goes that the Allman Brothers used to take the guitars into Rose Hill Cemetery at night, and they would jam, they would play and write songs there. And some of their songs have to do with uh, residents of the cemetery, like Elizabeth Reed. She's buried there. Little Martha is the little girl who died in an influenza epidemic. So, and even on the first album, you remember the picture where they're standing in a mausoleum? That's at Rose Hill Cemetery. So it's kind of spooky, but uh, they sort of followed the Robert Johnson legend a little too closely maybe and they developed their own along the way that's it they become a legend well uh gary we're just about out of time here tonight. <laughs> it's just it's just been fascinating i mean there's there's definitely some shows that we do here that we look up at the clock and we're like already <laughs> it's just uh, we're, unfortunately you know we keep people up late here on the show so we can't go uh four hours like uh your other appearances there but someday someday we will. well that's great man i've had a great time well we definitely want to have you back in the future we were already talking about during the commercial break, like we're gonna have him back. We'll do a show all about paranormal stories surrounding rock and roll. And, For and, sure, uh, we'll definitely uh, be in touch because there's there's numerous. Pro- we like to think of ourselves as the the rock and roll paranormal show. So, oh, that's great, man. This is that's uh, I've had a great time with you guys tonight. It's been fun. And uh, why don't you just uh, tell everybody? I know it's hard to get a hold of your your uh, books that are out now, but uh, should Tales from the Dark Side be a little bit more uh, available? Well, actually, you should be able to find Walrus's Fall and uh, take a walk on the dark side just about anywhere. If it's not in stock, they can get it to you in a few days. Or 
you can order it online at barnesandnoble.com or amazon.com or anywhere along those lines. And, and if you'd like to get in touch with me, uh, you can check out my website at rgarypatterson.com and send me an email. I try to answer all my emails. Sometimes it takes me a little while because I was on last night and usually I get a I get flooded inbox. I'm flooded, but I get some interesting letters, let me tell you. Well, and I remember when I first sent you the first email to contact you about coming on, uh, it was right after one of those appearances, and I was like, he's never going to find my email, but <laughs> thankfully you did. I did. I've had a great time, guys. I yeah. really have. We look forward to talking to you in the future. Well, we'll do it. Uh, and uh, next week we'll be back. Matt Moniz will be uh, on assignment with Bud Hopkins, but we'll be back with Keith Johnson, and we will talk to Rosemary Ellen Guiley about magic and alchemy. But uh, for now, we'd like to stay, stay spectacular, everybody. And the silent assassin, Matt Costa, is going to take us out to the strains of Revolution in the Night. Number nine, 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 number nine. not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction.